You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Dear podcast listener, we recognize that the sound quality of today's podcast is not our highest. We apologize for that, but thought that the stories told and the conversation that was had was worthwhile, and we are sharing it with you regardless of sound issues. We hope you'll enjoy it. Okay, this is a two-way conversation. Thanks. One, like you, I'm a senior citizen. So I wear hearing aids and I have problems hearing, especially beautiful women with a high-pitched voice. So ladies, speak up. The other thing, if you have a question while I'm addressing a particular issue, don't wait till the class is over and then ask the question. Ask the question now. While it's on your mind, it's fresh, and we can get into a discussion because I can pick up as we're going on. Now, we're going to start out, and I'm going to ask you a question. Can an atrocity like the Holocaust happen here in the United States? Yes. Anybody that says no? Don't be afraid. There are no failing grades. I don't grade. I don't know. The rabbi might, but I don't. Everybody says it can happen here in the United States. Why? It has, and it still is, among the Indian people, government agencies in some Okay, states. but the Indians did not suffer much overseas. So we're talking about two yeah. different governments. Yeah, two different Okay, governments, so why do you think it can happen here? I think that nobody thought that it would happen in Germany at one time, too. Well, the Jews had pogroms, and they had things happening, and those that thought it was going to happen and were able to came to the United States in the 1900s when the borders were open before Franklin Delano Roosevelt closed them. So, I'm going to ask you again. Yes, sir. Jews were always the focus of discontent when things go here. Okay. Always the vision that this country really uh, loses its control over uh, freedoms, basic freedoms. Uh, you get a guy uh, who's dynamic, uh, he can swing a lot of people very easily and they can be persecuted as they were in Europe. Engage and think and value 
not just our freedom, but the freedom of everybody else. And, you know, we just passed the 50th anniversary of Selma. Look what we did to African Americans in the bridge. People who, if you'd asked them probably a year before, could you do that? Probably would have said no. Anybody else? Well, I must say that you're better than most of my students. Most of my students, there will be a group that say, no, it cannot happen in the United States. Why can it not happen in the United States? Because we've got an elected government. Who's responsible for that government? Who? Who's responsible for that government? What do you mean nobody? We are. The most valuable possession that you have is the power to vote. And unfortunately, a lot of people that I know don't really know how to use that vote. So they go blindly to the polls and, oh, this one sounds good, or I like his name, or he stands up good, or he needs a change, and we vote blindly. I haven't missed an election since I got the right to vote at age 18. I'll vote for the door catcher. When I was in Israel, I voted absentee. The most valuable possession you've got. Now, we're not the brightest people. And we're not going to go into politics tonight. The only main thing I want you to all to understand is the right to vote. And if you know what you're getting into when you post your ballot. Hitler was elected. The Nazi party was elected. Then he was appointed. Then he said, I am the Fuhrer. And from then on, everything went to hell. The situation in Germany was, was uh, going from bad to worse. They had inflation. What's that got to do with it? Everybody was poor. I mean, they didn't have, they didn't so know what, what did leadership was. What did we have here? That's what's frightening. We had the same thing here. We had a depression. We had a strong leader. The stronger leader, we didn't have the people or a leader that said, okay, Congress doesn't matter. I am now the leader. And you will do what I say. And the Constitution doesn't matter. Or some other things don't matter. Because I am now the leader. Well, this is what happened with Germany. They were an educated people. They had reparations to pay because of the war they started. But we had a depression here. How many people committed suicide? Because they lost everything. Well, the but that doesn't change the fact. In a situation here where not just the poor, but rising amounts of the middle class are more dependent on the government to help them, not because they're lazy, but because the economy, that it would be very easy for a leader, politicians already do it. I'll cut your benefits, I'll raise your benefits. And they play not just the point of it, the middle class to get But so far we haven't gotten overboard yet. The only yet. thing I'm trying to bring out to you is keep an open mind. Don't arbitrarily vote for FDR. He could have saved millions. And who were some of his advisors? Jews! Who didn't give a crap about the Jews over there because you guys over there, you speak Yiddish. You're not good enough. We don't want you to diluting what we are doing over here. We want to become reformed Jews. We don't want to use Hebrew anymore. We want to use English. It is better to marry a Christian than a Holocaust survivor. Anybody ever hear that here in this one? Trust me. 
Yes. I'm not going to mention the rabbi's name or what synagogue he was from. On the, on the it wasn't me. Two-thirds of the people don't ever qualify, don't vote. Yeah, but they come to the government and says, give me. Yeah. A lot of times they have to have the government give them. That's the economy. No. Let me tell you something. Nobody gave the Jews of Europe anything. They worked. They dug the ditches. They rented the crops. They sold their stuff. You know, the disability benefits, I have to sign that I won't go to school? That's... That's the okay. system tips in its head to the be... The disability people in Europe were taken care of by the synagogue and the kahal. Not the government. I still have plenty of needs. I, I understand, but, that's, but that's don't compare everybody like here, you. No, what I'm saying is here we have to rely on the government because the system's flipped on its head. The laws make it that way. And therefore it sets who the may, who the the therefore it sets the state of the law. People who vote won't stand up and fight for us. Look, there are lots of people that need a helping hand. I also know lots of people that are out there have money for booze, have money for tattoos, have money for hot, and wait for the government to give them food stamps. Turn them in. I say that as a food stamp recipient who had my benefits cut because we put more people on it. Turn them in. That, look, we're not getting into that kind of stuff tonight. We don't have enough time. I'll take you on one at a time on another session. I'm not a police officer. You guys are. You guys go to the polls. You guys elect the government that gives, and you guys elect the government that says we need a balanced budget. My grandkids are going to have to pay off the debt for a lot of people standing on the street making more money than they are. Okay, we need to move. We need to move on. How many hate groups do we have here in the United States? That's not a good answer. Who do you draw the bar for hate group? Voice or action? Anything you want. If they hate you for being disabled, if they're, or if they're, they're white, or if they'll hit me with a club for it. Who cares? If they're white, you're going to be talking probably in the thousands to tens of thousands. We're yeah. talking about organized groups. We're yeah. not talking about individuals. There, there are several hundred here in Virginia that will write hate about other groups? Yes. Okay. Let's be reasonable. And let's understand what we're talking about. In the United States, what kind of hate groups are there? Like skinheads, okay? Okay, so we're going to visibly identify and not just write... Uh, identify as groups, not as individuals. So now, how many hate groups do we have in the United States? Official groups, organized groups. Nine hundred and thirty-seven. There were over ten thousand. I mean, nine thousand. I'm sorry. How many do we have in Virginia? Twenty-six. How many do we have in Richmond? Two. Two organized. Southern Poverty Law Center. If you want to find out about it. You can go into www.southernlawcenter. I had that list. Yes, I did. Well, anyhow. Oh, here it is. Okay. 
uh, in Richmond, we've got the racist skinheads, the white nationalists. And in Virginia, almost most cities in Virginia have it. So if you really want to get into it and check it out, you can go to Southern Poverty Law Center. They will give you the map and show you where in Virginia they are or where in the United States they are and who they are. So uh, just to let you know, now in school when I, I deal with this issue, I also take care of bullying. So that list doesn't count Muslim groups that have hate toward Jews like the Hamas? I'm sorry? That doesn't count the Muslim groups that have hate toward Jews like the Hamas? We didn't get into that because they have not created or done publicly anything. These groups have issues and publish and go out and do. This is who they hate. They hate blacks, they hate Jews, uh, they hate minorities, they have all sorts of criteria of who they hate. And they are listed as, uh, and some of them go out there, you know, and cause trouble. They just get the hell out of it. And they get recorded. And, uh, Mullet Beach with the Southern Poverty Law Center, that's them. And some of them get sued, or their leader gets knocked off, and then they fall apart and start as individuals. And there are a lot of them that have their tattoos all over the place, and you check some of the tattoos on some of them, they're not just flowers. And that's the sign of who they belong to or how they belong. The Holocaust. It was a Greek word meaning consumed by flame or sacrificial offering, which came out, I don't know exactly who came up with that word immediately after, but that's how it came about to be called the Holocaust or the Shoah, as we call it. Uh, by the way, what is a ghetto? Anybody? A walled-off area within the city. I'm sorry? A walled-off area within the city combined uh, uh, with the whole Jews, basically. In, uh, modern times. No, you can go back to Venice. The first ghetto was Venice. Okay. Where did you get the word ghetto? From the Italian. Meaning what? Uh, yeah. The boundary. I'm a little kid. You got a smart thing. Yeah. Yeah. The metal workers. The jewelers. It was the area where they manufactured a cannon called the ghetto gun. And from then on, the word ghetto is this is the section that the Jews that did not want to convert to Catholicism were roped off or sent off. It is not, as some of us students say, a rundown area. It wasn't a rundown area. It was just an area that was set aside, and of course it was a middle class working area where they manufactured a cannon. And the cannon was called a ghetto gun. That comes ghetto. Yeah, it was marked off, but that doesn't, that doesn't mean that you did. You said to go back to the ghetto with the gun. Right, exactly. Ah, so, what is the concentration here? Uh, any different? Uh, military control. It's a prison. It's a prison. Not a, what is a ghetto? It's, a, it's an open prison. Not a totally locked away. They are both exactly the same. A ghetto is for the local in other words, if we take a imaginary line, uh, let's not talk about Bob Wilde, and put it around Bethel, then everybody that's in Bethel is in the Bethel ghetto. Now, let's say that we start bringing people 
from Bethahaba over me, over T, and force them in here, this becomes a concentration camp. So it becomes a Bethel concentration. They work you in both, they starve you in both, and they kill you in both. No difference. Except for Auschwitz, which was an extermination camp, other than a concentration camp. It was a concentration camp and an extermination camp, because in Auschwitz, they brought you for the sole purpose of immediately executing you or immediately continuing to work. That's fairly clear? Only Auschwitz also into that category? I'm sorry, Robert. Only Auschwitz into that category? Basically because that was the biggest extermination camp. That's why so many Jews were executed. As they took you there for a sole purpose. They didn't manufacture anything. They took you there. If you could work, they transferred you over, or they transferred you out, or they used you to work as couples in the concentration camp, feeding your whole family into their own. Well, taking them out of the In 1933, we already covered that Hitler became Chancellor, and he appointed himself Führer, and abolished all the laws. He was the law. The courts now did what he told them to, not what was just. It was all, all his. Dachau was the first concentration camp that was built in 1933, within about, like from here to Hopewell, with a short distance, where people were put in there, not only Jews. Uh, Dachau was one of the nicer camps. Uh, in the beginning, they got you right. But uh, after Kristallnacht, 30,000 Jews were deported to Dachau. And then, uh, then they started marking the different markings on the uh, different people as to what they were. They had markings for uh, gypsies, uh, gays, lesbians, Jehovah's Witnesses, Poles, and of course Jews. Now, we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, when the laws were passed against the Jews, Jews could not sit on public benches. The benches were marked, nicht for Juden, not for Jews. Jews could not drink out of public water fountains. Jews could not go to public school. Jewish professionals were fired from their jobs. Uh, Jews couldn't walk on the sidewalk. Where did we have similar laws? In the South. Exactly the same kind of thing, but for, uh, not, not for blacks, which is basically, in fact, the house that I owned had a codicil that not for sale to Jews or blacks when I bought that house. And who do you think it belonged to? The property rather, not my house, but my house was right here. Who? Somebody Jewish wouldn't have had no, not for Jews. Anybody? Anybody ever use C.F. Sauer or no? Sauer's owned the property. He owned River Lawn. He owned part of uh, Windsor Farms. And he owned from Broad that was regular. There was at one time a garden right in the middle that now is full of apartments. Off of Monument Avenue that belonged to C.F. Sowers. And it had a codicil, no blacks or Jews. F.W. Woolworth, anybody remember that? It was a Christian establishment owned by a family out of Chicago. But the franchise in Berlin was operated by Jews. And here you see a German with a top hat, that's a dress of that type, and SA soldier, 
a brown shirt, a woman with a flower, standing in, F, in front of F.W. Woolworth, kaufen it from the Juden. Don't buy from the Jews. What happened to the employees? Now you said it was a depression, right? What happened to the employees? They lost their jobs. Who were they? <laughs> Everybody falls into that trap. <laughs> People realize, you in particular, the Jews were a minority. We couldn't have all the money, we couldn't have all the banks, we couldn't have all the newspapers, we couldn't run Germany. We were less than one percent. So who were the employees? Germans. Who got fired? Germans. Who fired them? A Jew. They owned the business. How did they now feel about the boss? Because they needed the business. They needed the money to buy food. How did they feel about it? Come on, guys. If you got fired and you needed your job and couldn't get another job, would you say, oh, it was my neighbor that kept customers from coming in? Or would you say, that darn Jew fired me? Because <laughs> you couldn't pay the salaries. They, they, they were not letting people in. Conflict from the Juden, don't buy from the Jews. What happened to the Soda Stream and the Palestinian workers that worked in that plant when they got boycotted and had to shut down and move inside the green? And they lost their jobs. And they were getting paid better by the Jews than they were by the Palestinian government with American money. Julius Streicher, a newspaper publisher, became a Nazi member between 1923 and he was publishing a newspaper, The Stormer, The Attacker, The Stormtrooper. And he couldn't give away 500 copies, you know, those free papers given away. He couldn't give them away until he took on the front page and made Jews look like rats, made them look like Shakespeare's uh, the pawnbroker, and on the bottom of each issue he marked the Judens in unser Umweg. The Jews are our disaster. You pick that up every day. Things are bad. Who do you blame it on? The Jews. The Jews did Never mind what Germany did, but the Jews did So now we hate the Jews and we say they look like rats. They are pawnbrokers. They steal all our money. They steal all our food. They have caused the economy to go to hell. His circulation went to 500,000. In 1937, Buchenwald concentration camp was opened up and the sign here said, Jedem das Seine. What you deserve is what you get and that's why you're in the concentration camp. The Mufti of Jerusalem. Nowhere is there any record of him actually becoming a spiritual leader. The British appointed him the Mufti. They heard he was a gangster. His family used to rob camel trains. They were armed. And he was also on the gay side. And a British officer that was also befriended him appointed him the Mufti of Jerusalem. Uh, in the beginning, the very beginning, Hitler was not thinking about annihilating the Jews. He wanted to get rid of the Jews, make Germany Judenrein, clear, get rid of them, and have only the German nation, the blue-eyed blonde Aryans, and get rid of the Jews. 
And where do we want to send them? Well, he thought about Madagascar, and then he thought about, well, Palestine with their ancestral home, we'll just get rid of them. The Mufti of Jerusalem found out about it. So he came to see Hitler and made a deal with Hitler. Don't send the Jews to Palestine and I will give you a Muslim legion to fight the allies in the Middle East. Who were the allies in the Middle East? Who? England. Right. France. Right. We weren't there yet. Yes, we were. In the United States. By the way, a few years ago, in his Berlin apartment, they found the plans for Auschwitz. He orchestrated part of the annihilation of the Jews in Auschwitz. And here he is with a Muslim Bosnian legion of Muslims that were fighting us in the Middle East. In 1938, that's me, my mother and my father. My father was a lawyer. By the laws that were passed in Germany, the Lithuanians adopted, and he could no longer practice law. He used to race motorcycles, so he went into the motorcycle business. And our living room was our showroom. We started our business with three motorcycles. It's a long story, uh, but that's the best we could do. Daddy would said he, he he got together with a friend of his. He says, "Lend me some money." We're going to buy three. He wanted first to buy one motorcycle. And the Belgian factory, Fabrique Nationale, said, we can't give you the franchise with three, with one motorcycle. You've got to have at least three to start with. So he talked a friend of his into buying one. If he didn't sell, the friend would have a motorcycle. He would buy one, have a motorcycle, and together they bought another motorcycle, which was in our living room. And mother sold that one while daddy was on the road demonstrating. Before the season was over, they sold 10 motorcycles. So the factory in Belgium told, uh, called Daddy and said, Look, come to the factory, we'll train you. If you can, without any training, sell 10, what could you do if you had training? And he ended up in Germany doing Kristallnacht. This is our motorcycle inventory, and that's my mother in our backyard in front of my grandparents' home. And in Europe, all the homes were fenced in and the entrance was, was from the inside. Why? What kind of security? You're right. What kind of security? From who? From your neighbors. From your neighbors. The Jews locked themselves up inside with a fence that you couldn't hop over. You see how tall that fence is? It wasn't barbed wire, it was wood. So on the other side it was smooth and both of them protected itself. It's a long story, but uh, we returned to our home after we were liberated by the Russians. And some of them we had, some of them, my mother's aunt, who was Bessie Brown, she sent over here in the 30s, Sadie was her sister, who was given uh, we, we'll, we'll have to cover that some other time. But uh, my grandmother was a widow. Her husband fell under a wagon with horse, killed him. Her husband, uh, his brother married my mother's mother. And she had five children. And Bessie Abrams said, send me two or three of your children. I will raise them as my own. And my mother was too young, so they wouldn't let her go. But she sent 
her bro- her brother and sister, Sadie and Alden, and uh, Sadie Bronstein was a member here in the synagogue. Uh, so they, they came over and they had correspondence and some of those pictures were also sent there. The rest of the pictures I'll tell you when we get to them. Cristaldo, the night of broken glass, November 9th and 10th, 1938. 267 synagogues were destroyed. 30,000 Jews were departed, deported to Dachau concentration camp. 260 some were killed just for being there. Here you see a Jew with a yellow star of David on the front and back of his clothing. Why yellow? Why not cowardice? Cowardice. They wanted to mock you could do anything you want to a Jew and get away with it. They were cowards. They weren't doing it. The Jews could not walk on the sidewalk. They had to walk in the street and they had to wear a hat and when they passed the German Guten Tag, Guten Abend, the humiliation of the Jews. Jews could not have Intermarital, intermarital relations with non-Jews. And if you did, both of them were assigned to disgrace you in public. 30,000 were deported to Buchenwald. Some of them were returned home because a lot of the, uh, some of the military personnel, so in the very beginning they had some leniency to let Jews back out and some of them just were annihilated. Stalin and Molotov and Ribbentrop same kind of thing we now got going on with Iran. Exactly the same kind of thing was going on at that time. And a deal was made, an appeasement. We'll divide up Europe because Hitler wanted an ally and he needed, why did, why did Hitler need Russia as an ally? Why Russia? Why not some other country? They had the biggest military. So, they were the only ones that could really start going after him. So I made a deal with them. Let's divide up Europe. And in 1941, the Russians came into Lithuania, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, part of Poland. Hitler came in the rest, and that took care of Europe. And Chamberlain signed off on it, and what did we do about it? Nothing. Nobody did anything. So then what did Hitler do? He says, I don't need you anymore. So I want the rest of it. I want to ruin the world. So I'm going to go after Russia. I was six years old at the time. Pope Pius XII made a deal with Hitler. You leave the Vatican alone, and I'm not going to talk out about your atrocities. To this day, the Vatican will not allow any scholar to come in to examine the records of that period. They had everything recorded. But they're not gonna, they don't allow any scholars of any religion to come in there to find out what happened to the Jews or to anybody. I was blonde, blue-eyed, perfectly Lydian. I had everything. Family, toys. I was one spoiled brat. Wasn't I cute? When Germany started attacking the Russians, my father had a feeling what was gonna happen. When the Russians came in, they took all our motorcycles. The Russians have a fantastic system. You know what that system is? Everything that you own belongs to me. The Russians take everything. So they came and said, Oh, your motorcycle inventory. Let's have it. Your bank account. Let's have it. And then they had to go to work for the Russians in the transportation department. 
and he was in charge. What kind of transportation did they have in those days? Mostly horse and wagon. So he was in charge of a cooperative, and every Jew that used to be a Balagoli, you know what a Balagoli is? A guy with a pipe that, 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 that travels and, and with a horse and wagon and, and, and tra- takes clothing and all that kind of stuff and carries it around or delivers it. A pebble on a horse and wagon. So all of them came today, please put us into your cooperative so at least you'll be able to do something. So he was in charge of that. And when Hitler attacked Russia, he took a horse and buggy and came home, told my mother, let's run with the Russians. At least we're going to be alive. He knew what was going on. I had a little sister at the time. We got up there and we started running with the Russians. We got to into the country and all of a sudden the Germans dropped paratroopers in front of us to cut off the Russian escape. Some of those Russians took off through the wheat fields and became partisans. Everybody know what a partisan is. And the rest of us were told to return home where we came from. When we came back, our neighbors, our neighbors started killing us in the street. And here you see Lithuanians beating Jews to the ground in Latuka's garage while their soldiers were standing there singing the Lithuanian national anthem. They took Jews and humiliated them before they beat them to the ground. They doused them with gasoline and burned them alive. This is Latuka's garage where it all happened. They went to the rabbi's house and with a saw cut off his head. This guy did. Paraded it through the street and when he got tired of playing with it, put it in the window as we do a jack-o'-lantern on Halloween. This is the marker that has been put out for that massacre. In 1941, 30,000 Jews were told to move into the Kovna ghetto, which was in Slabotka, a suburb of Kovna, where all the synagogues, the suits of learning, when you're talking about the Slabotka yeshiva, that's where it all was. They said, we're going to stop the killing by putting you inside of a compound called the ghetto by barbed wire guarded by Lithuanian police guards. This is where the main entrance was. Everybody had to move in. Then they asked for 534 young scholars to come and work in the archives. Everybody knows what archives are. Instead of working in the archives, they took them to the ninth fort and executed them. Why did they execute the 534 young scholars? Exactly. It wasn't going to be old men like me that was going to go out there and fight them. But the young scholars could recognize the problems, organize everybody, and have a resistance like they did in the Warsaw Ghetto. And some of our people actually did from the Ghetto. On October 28, 1941, 27,000 of us were taken to a field known as Democratic Square. Democratic field. You had to leave your homes, doors unlocked, closets unlocked. Anybody that would not come out would be executed in their homes. It didn't matter whether you were young, old, infirm, you had to be there. And we stood in front of a sergeant. A sergeant, not even an officer 
And he asked, was it dein Beruf verflucht der Jude? What is your profession, dem Jew? And as he went in front of a group, and if he saw a rabbi, a doctor, a lawyer, a businessman, the whole family was sent to the left. A ditch digger, a garbage collector, a cobbler, his whole family went to the right. When he came to Daddy, and Daddy spoke perfect German, and he said, Was ist dein Beruf verflucht der Jude? My father didn't know till his dying day why, but he said, Ich bin ein Automobilmechaniker. I'm a car mechanic. My father couldn't drive a nail straight. He was a businessman. He was a lawyer. He was a salesman. You don't do that kind of work. Rocker told him, take your family and go home. My grandparents, my aunts, my uncles, everybody, as you say, a whole clan, including a few neighbors that felt more comfortable in my father's group, we all went home. We survived. That night, 10,500 men, women, and children were executed on the ninth floor. 4,226 children. This is the ninth floor. This is Democratic Square. Many children got separated from the families. Orphans were not allowed. So the Jewish community grabbed those children, put them in a makeshift hospital, called it a contagious disease unit, figuring that the Germans and Lithuanians would be afraid of getting a disease. They found out the children were hidden there. They nailed the doors and windows shut, doused it with gasoline, and burned it with the doctors, nurses, patients, and 180 children inside. The very next morning, there was a banging on our door. A German with a rifle came. Where is the automobile mechanica? My father realized that we were all in danger. And he stepped forward, and in German said, Ich bin der automobile mechanica. The German said, come with me. And he took him to the airport, which was a couple of kilometers, like about three miles, from the ghetto. He told him, this is my vehicle, can you fix it? My father said, naturally, certainly, no problem. Well, how long will it take? A couple of days. He didn't know what the heck it was. He figured he'd go back into the ghetto and ask his friends that were mechanics how to fix it. The German said, I don't have a couple of days, you fix it now. Well, what seems to be the problem? Well, you the mechanic, you tell me. When I drive it, there's a banging underneath my seat. I don't know what the problem is. My father said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to lay down on the ground face up. You drive over top of him. Figure if he drove over top of him and killed him, that's a chance he had to take. Otherwise, he'd shoot him, no questions asked. So my father lays down on the ground, the German drives over top of him, and my father sees that the universal joint is hidden and left a mark under there. So he gets up and tells the German, I see what the problem is, I will fix it. The German goes away to talk to one of his buddies. Now my father doesn't know what kind of tools to ask for. He doesn't know 8mm from 10mm from 14mm. So he goes to the tool room and says, give me an adjustable wrench. And with an adjustable wrench, a screwdriver on his bare hands, he took the universal joint apart. Being a lawyer, he put everything in chronological order, went into the parts room and he says, guys, give me one of these. The boys realized that he had a problem. They gave him a good universal joint with the proper tools. He put everything in reverse order, went over to the Germans, said, I've got it fixed. Would you like to try it? By the way, how many calories a day do you guys eat? And too many is not a good answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, two, two, three thousand. That, that's fair. 
2,000 to 2,500 a day. A Big Mac and French fries is 1,020 calories for lunch. Okay. How many calories a week do you think we were allowed inside the ghetto? Not that. Do you know what that looks like? 934 calories. Four ounces of beans, four ounces of flour, three ounces of salt, three ounces of beef that could have come from one of the pets that was burned in our synagogue, and 22 slices of bread for seven days. You soak your beans real good at that time because they absorb more water. You could get all the water you want. The German told my father, you did such a good job, I'm going to give you a loaf of bread and some butter. My father refused. Because bringing bread and butter or anything like that into the ghetto from your job meant you would get what Mac got. They hung you. Mac was taken out to Democratic Square and hung with a noose under his chin so it took him longer to die. Everybody had to come out to see what happened to Mac and what was going to happen to you if you did it? I was seven years old when I watched him thrashing about from the rope like a minnow does on a fishing line before he finally succumbed. The next morning they got his mother and sister, took him to the ninth fort and executed him. So my father refused. The German told him to get in the vehicle that he had just fixed. He took him, drove him through the gate to our house, watched him go into the house with the bread and butter. By the way, they made him the shop foreman after he fixed the vehicle because he could speak German and to show how good a mechanic he was. My mother cut off a piece of the bread, put some butter on it, gave it to him. I took a couple of bites. It was good. And I ran out in the street with him. There were bigger boys there. One of them came over to me and said, Jay, I built a little airplane out of a couple of pieces of wood. I'll give you my airplane for the rest of your bread. I didn't have any toys. The Germans had taken everything I had, including most of my clothes. So I gave him my bread, grabbed my new toy, and ran into the house. I'll let you figure out what my mother did to me for giving away my bread for a couple of pieces of wood. The women also had to work in a work detail. My mother worked in one of those. And if they didn't work fast enough, they were beat. And she was hit with a rifle butt over her head, opening up many stitches. She lost her hearing because of it. The doctor sewed up her head and told her for a couple of days until it congealed not to go to work. The Germans did honor a doctor's note where they wouldn't kill you if you had a doctor's note. Then they decided that they needed 2,800 Jews from Kovna to go to Riga, Latvia, and Estonia. They started rounding people up in the streets. And when they didn't make their quota, they started going house to house, grabbing people for deportation. This is a picture of my grandfather before they put him on that truck. <coughs> this is a picture of me and my mother behind him. A Jewish policeman that was a friend of my father's recognized me, grabbed me and said, go home. Daddy will be looking for you when he comes home from work and take mother with you. Mother and I are the only two that survived out of the 2,800 that were deported and executed. Mother's whole family was executed. Shortly thereafter, while working on the job, my father met a farmer, a Lithuanian that he had done some favors for. The guy told him they were going to kill the children 
and if he could get me out, he would save my life. I refused to go. The decision ultimately was made, either the three of us would survive or the three of us would be dead. So in the middle of the November night in 1943, my father cut the wires in this very spot when we could no longer hear the cobblestones, the hobnails on the cobblestones as the guard was walking the beat. I went out and ran across the street and hid. This is the spot. This is my son standing at the spot without cause. I waited behind the fence, which seemed like forever, before my mother came out to find me. Now, how did my mother find me in total darkness? Hey, Jerry! It was our neighborhood. We knew it. She kept touching the ground till we touched another word passed between us. Then on another pass, my father came out. And we walked down the street where a farmer was waiting for us with a wagon full of straw. We were hidden. I was hidden under the straw. My mother sat with the farmer with a scarf over her face so that people wouldn't recognize her that might have known her as we were escaping and that she had city features instead of the skin that people had that work in the sun and in the fields. And we took off for the country. We came to Trakai, a hiding place, a farmer. This is what the place looked like. He had a one room, this was a, the house, a one room house. One window, one door, one table, one bed where the farmer, his 16 year old son and wife used to sleep next to the fireplace that they used to cook on. It didn't have a chimney, it didn't have a floor. And the sheep were kept inside the house to keep them from freezing. We didn't have anything to give them. They didn't ask for anything. They risked their lives to save ours because it was the right thing to do. My father knew that it was dangerous. So he asked Paskowskas, and that's them, if he could use their field, and as a 16-year-old boy, which, by the way, I brought him in, in this really beamer, I presented him with a gold medal for saving our lives. He's registered in Yad Vashem amongst the righteous, the whole family. This is the inside of the hiding place that my father dug out with his hands and a stick. And since he wasn't an engineer, he didn't know that if you dig in the ground and you don't show it up, it can cave in on you. And one night as he was digging, the whole place caved in on him. The farmer had a German shepherd by the name of Rexit. Rexy became our friend and our guardian. If he barked, we knew it was danger. So he walked. We used to go at night with Daddy when he was digging in the field, under the field. And when it caved in, he started barking. The farmer's 16-year-old son, Stashuk, heard his dog barking. He was coming back from playing fiddle at a hoedown. So he came running, and he saw a hand sticking out from beneath the ground. He opened up my father's face so he could breathe, ran home, and got his family, his father and mother, and together they dug my father out. After that, whenever Paskowskas chopped down trees, he would leave pieces for my father to show up the ground. And on daddy's deathbed, I was building the museum, the one thing he ever approved of my doing. He never approved anything I did. I became a pilot, he didn't like it. I went to the military, he objected. Uh, if it didn't have anything to do with the business, it was not, not good. But when I told them I was going to build a Holocaust Museum, he says, call up your cousin, he'll help you. So, I asked him, 
I said, you didn't have a hammer, you didn't have nails, you couldn't make any noise. How did you get the wood to stay together? Anybody got any ideas? With what? With what? I can make cordage uh, from a lot of different things. Okay, what? Or, wheat stalks. Wheat stalks? We took wheat stalks, made rope out of them, tied this stuff together, and his biggest fear was that when I went from one tunnel, called to the escape tunnel, back and forth, that I would knock that stuff down and would all cave in on us. Thirteen of us ended up in the place uh, four foot high, nine foot by twelve foot. Those were the people that were in the hiding place. And this is the 16-year-old boy that I brought here and his son. And here I'm looking into the hole that my father dug out where they used to store potatoes. In 2003, I went back in November because I wanted to build a synagogue that my father used to attend, and I built it at the Virginia Holocaust Museum. And while I was there, I went back to our hiding place. We were liberated by the Russians, and as soon as we were liberated, the first thing we did is try to go back to the ghetto, which by that time was a concentration camp. In 1943, they changed the order from the ghetto to the concentration camp because they started importing German Jews and Latvian Jews into the Kovna ghetto, so now it became the Kovna concentration camp. To make sure that all the Jews were executed or taken away, and they knew some of them were still hiding, they set the ghetto on fire. They doused it with gasoline and set it on fire. When we got there, the fire was still going on, and here you see a Lithuanian scavenging to see what he could pick up, because some people hid their wedding bands in that, to see if he could find anything to steal. We knew about this bunker right here, that if any of my father's family would have survived, this is where they'd be. So we came to that bunker, and on the ground, we found my aunt's ration card. Everybody know what a ration card is? We found my aunt's ration card for the food that we used to get. Each week we had to bring the ration card. So we found her ration card, and inside was the burned body of a woman that was burned beyond recognition. We don't know if that was if that was her or not, but we never saw any of my father's family again. All of my aunt had memorial plate in the back. Six million Jews were executed during the Holocaust. One and a half million children. Oddly enough, in 1997, the population of Virginia was 6,377,000. Imagine yourself standing anywhere in this state and not seeing another living human being. The school population in 1997 was one and a half million. Imagine yourself as a child, a school child, standing anywhere in our state, looking in all directions, not seeing a father, a mother, a sister, a brother, or another person. Lithuania had a population of 220,000 Jews, less than 5,000 survived. 92% of us were killed by our Lithuanian neighbors, not in Germans. Only 118 children survived on one of them. Now I had pictures on another PowerPoint, which you can go on for hours, but they pull out the whole PowerPoint, of the guy, a Catholic priest, a Catholic priest, that led the massacre of the Jews with his parishioners. That's me 
in Lithuania with the kids that survived in Cup. Okay. Any questions? Yes, ma'am. The anti-Semitism in Lithuania was always there, but it was subdued. The Lithuanian government, prior to the Russian invasion, tolerated the Jews. And we all lived pretty well. Once the Russians came in, the intelligentsia of Lithuania, as well as the Jews, were deported. And the Catholic Church, all the Lithuanians are Catholic, the Catholic Church blamed the Jews for the deportation of the intelligentsia and said the Jews brought communism for them to Lithuania. And that's why they hated the Jews. And to this day, the Lithuanians are the worst anti-Semites in all of Europe. They are parading once a year with swastikas and banners in the capitals without any problems at all. To this day, a couple of months ago, they had a parade who covered marching and a group of them, a whole battalion of them, marched with swastika armbands and banners and the Lithuanian government judiciary said it's okay, it's a heritage. And uh, OSI, the Office of Special Investigations, deported 37 Lithuanians. The guy that the priest that I told you about that led the massacre against the Jews lived in New Jersey and operated the Lithuanian relief organization until about 10 years ago when he was discovered and when he was deported by the Office of Special Investigations, that's uh, this right here, uh, they made him a hero and he didn't serve any time. The American government deported 37 Lithuanians that lived in the United States, fat and happy and dry. Some of them are still getting some social security. And the Lithuanian government did not prosecute a single one. They came home and skipped. And Rocka, that Nazi that I told you, he was caught in Toronto. He was deported and he died in the hospital of stomach. Pain. Any questions? Yes, Robert. Um, I'm just curious where you found the pictures. Um, yeah, that, that where, where you, you found yourself in the pictures. Okay. Uh, there was an engineer in the ghetto by the name of Kadushin, Kaddish. When the Germans took everything away from us, he hid his 35 millimeter camera. He worked in the X-ray department for the Germans, and he bought and stole film and chemicals. And he took pictures through the buttonhole of his coat. And if you saw, most of the pictures were angled down, He'd go up in the attic of the house when they saw things happening and take pictures. He developed them and he hid them inside the ghetto. He survived. He picked the pictures up. And like when we escaped from the Russians, which is another whole <laughs> lecture, uh, he escaped. And we came to Munich and he came to Munich. And he took pictures of me and Dan and the Unra and a lot of the other stuff, which I have in pictures from Munich. Then he came to the United States. The United States Holocaust Museum was built before I built our museum. So he gave all his pictures to Washington. By the time I built our museum one day, I was going to give a lecture. And children don't like to listen to an old man. At that time I was what? 70s? No, 60s. Uh, 
So I said, well, if I'm going to get the children's attention, I need pictures, something to show them. And just listen, they're all going to go to sleep. So I, I remember that Kadusha's pictures were in Washington. I called up Washington. I told them who I was. I'm a charter member. And they've got interviews of me and my parents in their archives. And I said, look, I know you've got Kadusha's pictures. Can I get someone? I said, these are the things I remember. And I told him the things that I remember, the deportation to Riga and some of the... And he said, oh, your explanation is so vivid, we can go to the file right now, we'll send you 25 pictures, take a look at them, pick out what you want, and then we'll uh, bill you for what you use, and you can go ahead and use them. I said, fine. I went through the pictures, because I didn't want to make any mistakes on places and stuff, and I found my picture. I couldn't believe it. What are the coincidences of finding that picture? My father was still alive at the time, and on Commerce Road, everybody, from, anybody familiar with Commerce Road? There was a Lebanese restaurant called Honesty's, and Cantor Okanal Visholom, and Peck, on Peck Island and Metal, all the Jews used to go over there on Friday and get fresh trout, which was special made for them, with special dishes, you know, so they had a kosher meal. So I called up Danny, and I said, hey, how about if I take you to Honesty's, and we'll have some time? He said, oh, that sounds great. He had retired by that time, and I was running the business. So we went to Honesty's. I didn't tell him the real reason I took him to Honesty's. And while, after we placed our order, I said, look, I'm going to give a lecture. How about help me identify some of those pictures? So we started going through the pictures, and he says, that's your grandfather. I said, no, it's not. He says, yes, it is. I was waving goodbye to him as he was getting on the truck. I no longer remember his face. I remember the incident, but I could not remember his face. And then we went to the next picture. I said, well, that's your mother standing there. A Jewish policeman pulled me out of line and told me and mother to go home because daddy would be coming for us and sure enough we left everybody was deported and daddy came home and after that he planned our escape so uh, that's how I got the pictures any other questions yes Sure that I said it every night. But then I need a little bit of a little bit. 
And she died in the ghetto. And you can believe or not believe. I was a sweet woman. And I saw her in a white shroud at the foot of my bed telling me everything was going to be over. No, uh, they figured they got them all, or they're too old to do anything about it. The uh, OSI was taken into the Justice Department, but that office was discontinued. A guy by the name of Eli Rosenbaum, who was the driving force behind it, he reported more Nazis than any of his predecessors. And he took off this thing and gave it to me, even though I have one of my own. Do you have any today? No, I don't. Well, most of them are in the 90s of the past. Don't forget, I'm going to be 80 in June and I was 6 years old. Cars were very hard to get. 
and all the finishes on the cars were oxidized. People had old cars from prior to the war and all that. And a chemical company came out with a chemical called Lightning. And it was really easy to apply. It had a silicon finish in it. And it glistened. So what my mother used to do is when she'd go from there and look at the windshield wipers, because maybe you'd buy a windshield wiper, she would take a little bit on the day and make a little circle right in your line of vision. <laughs> and when the driver would get back in the car, look how beautiful that spot looks. If you'd like to make the rest of the car look like that, you can buy a can of lightning. She sold more lightning than any other distributor in the city of Richmond. So then Sonoko opened up a station on another corner in Mexico on the same corner, trying to head off our track, our traffic. By that time we had started going into the automobile wholesale business of parts, and we became the biggest uh, car parts distributor, a truck parts distributor. Any other questions? We were going to cover the Torah, but it's kind of late. You still don't want to go into it? You do it in five minutes? Yeah, we'll do it in five minutes. Everybody heard that the Germans wanted to destroy who and what the Jews were. So when they came into Czechoslovakia, they did not still have, in the very beginning, 41, 42, the drive to annihilate everything about Judaism. The Jewish community in Czechoslovakia had some scholars in it, and they managed to convince the leadership of Germany that were in Czechoslovakia, in Terezin, to allow them to take the Torah scroll from Terezinstadt, from the area of Czechoslovakia, and bring them to Terezin, the com compound where was the uh, Czech uh, ghetto, where everybody was, the Solomon there too. And they archived them. In 1942, they decided to stop that, take them, deported the guys that were doing the archiving, to ask them to execute them, and they used Terezin as a ghetto to show the world how well they were treating the Jews. They allowed them to compose music, to do acting, and to do the children, to do art, and, and write poetry, and all that. In the moment that that person would go through, they would take that group and ship them off for execution, and a new group would come in. In 1946, those stores were discovered by the Russian government. And Norman Sosiski, a member of our synagogue at one time, was a congressman, he and some other people got involved, and because of the Iron Curtain, nobody in the United States wanted to tour it, but Great Britain said, Westminster Synagogue in London will take the tour. So the tours were shipped to uh, Great Britain, Westminster Synagogue, I was there, I saw them, and in 1982, 1987, my family and was the first Holocaust tour from that period to Richmond, and that's in the Jewish Center. If you ever go in the Jewish Center, the tour that's on display in the wall, that's the Ipsy tour. Then, when Rabbi Berman got ready to retire, the congregation bought this tour right there, and that's when I gave you the handout. That's regarding that tour. We brought that tour in as a Holocaust tour to honor in the Torah number 292, 298. And uh, then Beth Israel got one, I got one for the Holocaust Museum. I think there are about five Holocaust stores in the 70s. 